Here's the reality. The reality is, is none of us ever like to be in positions to where we feel weak. None of us ever like to be in positions to where we feel like we don't have any strength. But here's what I'm learning. The secret weapon of a believer is not your strength, nor is it your power, but it's actually God's grace. Because when I read in scripture, it was not strength that got Daniel out of the lion's den, it was grace. It was not strength that got the three Hebrew boys out of the fiery furnace, it was grace. It was not Abraham and Sarah's strength that allowed them to have Isaac, it was grace. And the truth of the matter is, if you called your grandmama right now, it was not her strength that got her to where she is after all the hell she went through on this side of heaven, it was God's grace. It's God's grace that's gonna keep you, it's God's grace that's gonna push you, and the reality is is God says I work best not in your strength but I work best in your weakness and when you surrender to me that's when you get to see my grace so good to see all of you super quick question want to check the temperature in the room how many came about excited about Jesus this morning let's go absolutely love it well hey if you got a Bible I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16 we're gonna get straight to work here. Pastor Preston will be back next week to continue our seven mandate series. Uh, I'm gonna kind of piggyback a little bit uh, on what he talked about uh, last weekend. Let me just say that Matthew chapter 16, we're gonna look at verses 21 uh, all the way through 28. It's quickly becoming 2024, without a doubt, my favorite, favorite, favorite passage of scripture. But let me also say in Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse number 21, it's probably one of the most painful passages of scripture. And I don't know how many people we got here who are like baby boomers, but there was this old movie that I had to watch as a kid called Mary Poppins. And she had this favorite, <laughs> she had this like famous little song that says just a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine to go down. Here's what I'm gonna try to do. Based on this passage of scripture, I'm gonna try to put a little sugar on top of it. But I pray that as it goes down, it will begin to transform our hearts and our minds. Uh, before I jump into the passage, before I jump into the message, would you do me a favor and join me in a word of prayer? Holy Spirit, we thank you so much, and we know that your presence is in this room. Now, Lord, I stand up under your authority, completely and totally surrendered. Would you say what you want to say to us? And would you soften our hearts in such a way that we would be able to receive? We rejoice in the fact that you love us and that you care about us. So in this moment, we surrender and say, Lord, would you do open heart surgery on us? And at the conclusion of this message, I pray that we would walk out of this place looking like, sounding like, and acting like, more like you. We thank you, we bless you, we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. And everybody said, Amen. All right, so real quickly, those who know me well, and I might say, when I say those who know me well, I'm really referring to my wife. Um, <laughs> I have a certain condition that I struggle with. It's a condition that I've actually given a self-diagnosis to. And the condition I struggle with is what's called chronic narrative syndrome. Some of you are saying, well, Pastor Brent, what's chronic narrative syndrome? I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you. Um, chronic narrative syndrome, the number one symptom of someone who suffers from chronic narrative syndrome is an individual who always wants to be in control of the narrative of their life. Now, 
I got a funny feeling I'm not the only person in this room who probably suffers from chronic narrative syndrome. A brother raised his head, amen. <laughs> the other day, it was Monday, it was President's Day. We all had the day off, so grateful for that. I'm driving down the street, getting ready to take my son to basketball camp, and out of the blue, here's what I say. And I had no intentions when I woke up this morning having this, saying these words or having this conversation. But I get in the car, I'm driving down the street, I'm pulling up my complex, and out of the blue, I just say, Lord, I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting with you. I'm tired of trying to control the narrative. Lord, I just surrender. And it's going to be whatever it's going to be. Now, how do we get here? Let me tell you, truth, uh, truthfully, for the last couple of years, y'all, I've had an image in my mind with how my life was supposed to look and how my life was supposed to be. And here's what you need to know. It's a beautiful picture. It's not me out in the world acting like a fool. It's an image of me serving Jesus. But it's an image of me serving Jesus the way I want to serve him. Not necessarily the way he may want me to serve him. So here it is. I, I'm, I'm suffering from this thing, and I'm tired of suffering with it. I say, Lord, whatever you want it to be is what it's going to be. About seven minutes goes by. And the reason why I know it's seven minutes, because I'm stopped at this particular light that I am very familiar with. Okay? And this particular light actually means something to me. And I'm sitting here at the light, and all of a sudden, here's what I hear the Holy Spirit say to me. Brent, you'll never be who I've called you to be until you surrender to who you desire to be. God, that's what I said. <laughs> Literally, I was like, oh, God, my son was in the backseat. He was like, what happened? I said, don't worry about it, son. The Holy Spirit just talked to me. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But it got me to this place to realize the truth of the matter is, is all of us, no matter how mature you are or how new you are in Christ, surrender is not a one-time thing. But it should become a spiritual discipline that we do daily. And it got me to thinking, and here's the message title. It's in the form of a question. It's a question that I want you to take some time and answer for yourself. And the question is this, are you fully surrendered? Because here's the reality, some of us can be surrendered in certain areas of our lives, but not surrendered in other areas of our lives. And the reality is, is we can't be partially surrendered. We can't be kind of surrendered. But if we're gonna be the type of men and women that God has called us to be, y'all, we've gotta be fully surrendered. And there's no person that's better in scripture that paints a picture for what it looks like to be fully surrendered. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Now, in order for you to understand the context of verse 21, you got to go back to verse number 13 and recognize a conversation that takes place between Jesus and the disciples. Here's what happens. Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them a question and he says, who do men say that I am? And then they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. But then he says, but who do you say that I am? And this man named Simon says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, boy, you smart, but you ain't that smart. 
He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was my father which is in heaven. And here's what happens to Simon. He looks at Simon and says, from this point on, your name shall no longer be called Simon, but I shall call you Peter, which means rock. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus says, I'm gonna use you, Peter, to build God's kingdom. But then it gets even better than that. He says, here's what I'm also gonna do for you, Peter. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you buy on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here it is, y'all. Peter has this amazing moment in his life and literally a couple minutes later, everything changes. Let's take a look at what happens in verse number 21. Here it is. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary. Somebody shout at me, necessary. Necessary, necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. Well, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? And that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And I can just picture like an old mother standing there listening to the conversation and looking at Peter and being like, Peter, bless your heart. And for those of you who ever move to the South or go to the South, if someone ever looks at you and tells you, bless your heart, just know that they are not giving you a compliment, okay? <laughs> just... So here it is. So Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Y'all, here's what blew my mind about this text. I realized that I was not the only person who suffered from chronic narrative syndrome. You know who else suffers from it? Peter. But I would argue what makes Peter's condition just a little bit worse is he's not even trying to control his own narrative. Now he's actually trying to control Jesus's narrative. And you will always find yourself in trouble when you try to tell Jesus what's supposed to happen. The truth of the matter is I think some of us oftentimes sit around and try to say, well, Lord, can you, can you make this happen? Can you make, do, do this, Lord? Y'all, Jesus is not our genie in the bottle. And walking with him is not like Burger King because you can't always have it your way. It's just facts. So here's the question that I'm asking myself. How in the world does Jesus go, Peter go from one moment of being a man to where he changes his name? Jesus says, I'm going to build my kingdom through you and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven to a couple verses later to be a man that's completely and totally being rebuked. And here's what happens. In the first conversation, Peter didn't realize that Jesus was the Messiah because Peter was so smart, because Peter was so gifted, because Peter was so talented, because Peter was so anointed. It was none of those things. The reason why Peter realized Jesus was the Messiah is because Peter wasn't looking at things through his flesh, but he was looking at things the way God saw them. But then the moment he saw a narrative that he didn't want to agree with, he stopped looking at things from God's point of view and started looking at things through his own point of view. And the reality is, is you and I are our healthiest, not when we're looking at things through our flesh, but we're looking at things through the lens of how God sees it. And here's the question that I need to ask you. As you look at the circumstances of your life, as you look at the things that are taking place in your life, could it be that one of the reasons that you and I struggle with surrendering is because we're looking at things from our own point of view versus looking at see what is God doing in this season? God, how are you trying to grow me? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? 
I remember seven or eight years ago, I went through one of the worst seasons of my entire life. And one of the best pieces of advice, one of my best friends in the entire world gave me, he says, Brent, sometimes God will not take you out of the storm, but he will change you while you're in the storm. And it's from that moment on when I realized, you know what, God, your word is true. As it says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Just show me what you want to teach me in this season so that I can become more like you. Now, getting back to Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate picture, though, of what it looks like to be completely and totally surrendered. Why do I say Jesus is the ultimate picture? Here it is. Jesus tells his disciples he's got to go to Jerusalem. And we've already read the text. What's waiting for him in Jerusalem? Death, suffering, persecution. And honestly, if I was with the disciples, Jesus, why are you going to do that? And here's what Jesus says. I must go to Jerusalem because it's necessary. There's a reason why I had you shout that word necessary out, because when you and I understand, get to this place where we're completely and totally surrendered, we'll do the things that are necessary to be done, even if it's going to cost us. Real question. Do you think Jesus actually wanted to go to the cross? Let me answer for you. The answer is no. He didn't want to go. How do I know he didn't want to go? Here's how I know he didn't want to go. When he's in Gethsemane and he prays three times, here's what he says. Father, if this cup could pass, let it pass. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where Jesus was just skipping to the cross, ready to go die. No, the man didn't want to go. But here's also how I know he surrendered. After he prays every single time, Father, if this cup could pass, let it pass. You know what he says next? But not my will done, let your will be done. Here's the true test on whether or not you know that you're surrendered. You make your request known before God. But after you make your request, here's what happens after that. But God, not my will, your will be done. Girl, it's okay if you want to pray for a man that's 6'6 six, and six chocolate and handsome. Pray for it. But end it with not my will, let your will be done. So if he show up and he five six and he a little pale, that's all right. <laughs> as long as the hands of the Lord is upon it, you all good. But you and I got to get to this place where we say, Father, not my will, but let your will be done. Here's the beautiful thing that I love that Jesus shows us about surrender. Jesus shows us that you and I must be willing to be used by God and be used by God. Brent, what are you talking about? Jesus was used by God to lay hands on the sick, to see blinded eyes be opened, to see the dead get up from the grave, to see lame people walk. He was used by God in a remarkable way, but he was also used by God to go to Golgotha, to be beaten, and to be whipped, and to be mocked, and to be spat on. But in the end, there was always a greater reward, which was not only his resurrection, but the entire earth received the greatest reward of all time, and is that those men and women who would put their faith in Jesus would receive eternal life. So what do I mean? I'm not, I'm, I, don't, I don't want you and I to have to go to Golgotha and do this. We don't have to do it because Jesus already did it. However, I want us to be used by God and be used by God. What does that mean? As a church, 
My prayer is, is that as a people of pillar, that we would lay hands on the sick and we would see people recover. My prayer is, is that we would take care of widows and orphans in our city. My prayer is, is that we would do amazing outreach. My prayer is, is that we would preach the gospel and the good news of Jesus, not here in the walls, but outside of the walls, and we'd see revival break out in our city. I pray that we would be used by God, and I pray that we would be used by God when we have seasons in our life where it looks like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But here's what the rest of that passage says. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'll be used by God and be used by God. Watch this. Here's what happens. Jesus finishes telling them what he has to go through, but then he looks at the disciples. And he says, now here's what you have to do. He picks it up in verse number 24. Here's what he says. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, surrender, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Verse 26, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Y'all, I had some fun this week. I had a conversation with people in the office. I had a couple conversations with people at coffee shops. And I just went around and I started asking people, if you had to define surrender, if you had to describe what surrender looks like, how would you say it? And here's the deal, out of all of the answers that I was given, I didn't disagree with any of them. So I'm gonna give you like four or five different definitions this morning of surrender, and you just take the one that means most to you. Amen, amen. All right, definition number one, surrender requires trust. Say it again, surrender requires trust. I'm starting to figure out that oftentimes we have a hard time surrendering to God because we don't always trust what he's going to do. And the other reason why we have a hard time surrendering to God is because we like to control everything going back to this chronic narrative syndrome. But here's what I've learned about surrender. Surrender is less about losing control and more about putting your trust in the one who's in control. Newsflash, you were never in control, no way. So why try to pretend that you are? And I can guarantee you that you will never go wrong when you and I completely and totally put our trust in God. Another definition someone gave me is surrender is realizing or coming to the realization that you are completely and totally powerless. Here's the reality. The reality is, is none of us ever like to be in positions to where we feel weak. None of us ever like to be in positions to where we feel like we don't have any strength. But here's what I'm learning. The secret weapon of a believer is not your strength, nor is it your power, but it's actually God's grace. 
How do I know it? Here's what Paul said three different times. Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. You can go back and read it and I'll paraphrase it. But three different times, he asked the Lord, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? And here's what God says. I'm not going to remove it. Here's why. Because my grace is all you need. My power is made perfect in weakness. And I want to take a moment and speak to some of the strong people in this room. I can tell you right now that your strength is not going to get you any further than where you are. Because when I read in scripture, it was not strength that got Daniel out of the lion's den. It was grace. It was not strength that got the three Hebrew boys out of the fiery furnace. It was grace. It was not Abraham and Sarah's strength that allowed them to have Isaac. It was grace. And the truth of the matter is, if you called your grandmama right now. It was not her strength that got her to where she is after all the hell she went through on this side of heaven. It was God's grace. It's God's grace that's going to keep you. It's God's grace that's going to push you. And the reality is, is God says, I work best not in your strength, but I work best in your weakness. And when you surrender to me, that's when you get to see my grace. Then here's the third thing that somebody said, and I thought it was really good as it relates to surrender. They said, surrender is not simply being good. What do you mean by that? Here's the reality. You and I can do a good thing, but if it's not what God asks you to do, it's not surrender. I tell you a story in scripture, it's, it's what happened to Saul. Saul was just anointed to be a brand new king. I think you go read it in the first Samuel, I think it's 16 or 17 is a chapter. I don't know off the top of my head. But Samuel, Saul just got anointed to be this brand new king. He's leading Israel. He's going against the Philistines. And here's what the greatest prophet Samuel of all time says. He says, hey, I'm going to go away for seven days. When I come back after seven days, we're going to make an offering to the Lord together. But don't do it until I get here. Cool. So here's what happened. Samuel's in battle against the Philistines and he's getting his butt kicked and he panics and he does a good thing. What's the good thing? He offers a sacrifice to the Lord. He's got praise and worship going on. I raise a hallelujah. Like he's doing his thing. And then Samuel shows up. He says, what'd you do? He says, well, we were losing and you weren't here, so I made an offering to the Lord. I prayed. What else was I supposed to do? You were supposed to wait. You did a good thing, but it wasn't the thing I told you to do. I expected you to surrender so you could see God's strength show up, God's grace show up in your weakness. But because you didn't, I found a man after my own heart. And that was the beginning of the end for Saul. How many of us are fooling ourselves by thinking we're doing good things, but it's not the thing God asked us to do? And we're avoiding the very thing God's been asking us to do because we don't want to surrender that area of our life. As I look at all these different definitions, they're all amazing. Here's my final definition. This is kind of the one that I came up with just based on what I see in the text. And I'd encourage you to write it down. Here it is. Surrender is you doing whatever is necessary to become who God's called you to become and do what he's asked you to do. Here's the truth of the matter. You and I have to get to a place to where we die to some of our desires. We put them on the altar and we say, God, whatever you ask me to do, whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Outside of Jesus, there's no other person who does this better than Paul. Real quick, 
Just so you know, if I had a, a Mount Rushmore of my four favorite persons in scripture, y'all are know Jesus is number one. Uh, but here's the reality. I'm gonna try to get as close to being like Jesus, but I ain't gonna do it, fam. I just can't do it. So my second person who I love the most is Enoch because he's the man who's known as walking close fellowship with God. But then my third person is Paul. And the reason why I love Paul because he's done remarkable, remarkable, remarkable work as it relates to being the hands and feet of Jesus. And here's what I love about Paul. Paul, um, as Deion Sanders would say, is that dude. Like, he that dude, right? And you can go read about his resume in Philippians chapter 3. From Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, I won't read it. I plan on it, but I don't have enough time. Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, Paul puts out his resume, his pedigree, his outline of, of who he is. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. He says, I'm a Hebrew if there was a Hebrew. I followed the law to the strictest obedience. He knew Torah backwards and forward. If you look at Paul's writing, he is a brilliant legal mind, especially if you look at the book of Romans, the way he puts out an argument. Just as a fun fact, I think it was 30 or 40 years ago that in law school, I think it was Harvard Law to be exact, that they actually made their students read the book of Romans because of Paul's legal mind. It's absolutely insane. And then Paul goes on to say in Philippians chapter three, right around verse number eight, here's what he says. Despite all of this, I count it worthless. I count it worthless compared to the value of knowing Christ. My resume means nothing to me. My family name means nothing to me. My Accomplishments mean nothing to me. All of it is dung compared to the value of knowing Christ. And then Paul, again, is this great image of uh, what it looks like to be surrendered because there's something that he says in Acts chapter 20. I want you to turn there. It's just two verses of scripture. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. And I want you to understand the magnitude of what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 by first explaining that something that happened to Paul earlier on in Acts chapter 16. Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life is completely and totally turned around. And he starts going on all of these different missionary journeys and he's preaching the gospel. And I think it's in Acts chapter 16 uh, to where he's doing this work. And there's this woman who's possessed by a demon. And here's the reality. Paul just got aggravated with the woman and decides to cast the demon out. He casts the demon out, but her handlers get upset with him. So they have him and Silas arrested. They have them stripped, beaten with wooden rods, thrown in prison, locked up in the stocks. You all know the story. It says, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. And if I was in a black church, they'd be like, amen. Like they go crazy at that part. Paul and Silas pray at midnight. Do I, but I'm not here, amen. Praise Jesus. Um, <laughs> bring it back, bring it back. All right. So they're praying. And God calls an earthquake to happen. The text says that the prison doors were open, but before they leave, they preach the gospel to the jailer. He gets saved. His family gets saved. And Paul continues on this missionary journey. Now, as I read the text, I try to be real about what's going on. Now, I don't know about you, but let me just speak for Brent Hatchett. If I gave my life to Jesus and I start doing the work of the Lord, and as a consequence of doing the work of the Lord, I get the brakes beat off of me 
for doing a good work, I'm probably going to try to negotiate with the Lord and be like, hey, Jesus, like, I think I did good. Can I, like, stop now? Like, that, that might be me, right? But that's not Paul. Because Paul understands the concept of total surrender. Paul's getting ready to go on more missionary journeys, and he meets with the elders from Ephesus. And I want you to see what he says to the elders at Ephesus. This is what's in your Bible, and this completely and totally blows my mind. Here's what he says. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. This is after being beaten, after being whipped, after being thrown in prison, and he's got to go on another journey. And here's what he says. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But then he says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Can we stand right where we are and y'all can send out keys? Y'all, this is my prayer for me and you. It's not my prayer that you and I would have to endure the same level of persecution as some of our heroes in Scripture. That's not my prayer. But here is my prayer. My prayer is that you and I would be bound by the Spirit in such a way that we would walk in complete and total obedience to every single thing He asked us to do. And let me just make it a little lighthearted. Sometimes it can be the simple things in life. Like one of my biggest weaknesses is crumble cookies. I absolutely love it. And every now and again, I look at a crumble and I just hear the Holy Spirit saying, boy, you know you don't need that. Maybe total surrender for you begins with starting small, such as denying the cookie. Then it grows, because here's the reality. Some of you might get a DM, and it's a DM that you know you not only need to ignore, it's also from a person that you probably need to block. Because I'm trying to get to this place of total surrender. Sometimes total surrender means I've got to walk away from some relationships that I've had for a long time, but God's saying the season is up. Sometimes I might need to walk away from an organization as much as I love the organization, as much as I consider the organization my family, whatever it may be. For me to become who it is that God's called me to be, I've got to die to the desires who I want to be. Let me just, one more transparent moment. Let me tell you exactly how I got to this message. I preached it to y'all, but I was really <coughs> preaching to me. I don't know how many of you all do like a word of the year. Um, but this is my first time. Well, it's my second time doing a word of the year. Last year, I did a word of the year, but I just made it up. This year, I actually prayed about my word of the year. And as I was praying, I was just really hoping, like, the Lord was going to give me an awesome word, like, favor or bless, like, something like that. Um, and as I was praying, here's the word that the Lord gave me. He gave me the word surgery. And when he gave it to me, I literally lamented for the first 24 hours because I know what that means. And here was the picture I felt like he showed me. 
when I first got saved at 16 years old, I used to pray two times a day. I knew nothing about the Bible. I knew nothing about the Bible, but I was radically in love with Jesus. So I would pray at six in the morning before I went to school and I would pray in the evening. I had a prayer CD that someone gave me from the church that I went to. I listened to that in the morning. And in the evening, I listened to Shekinah Glory, Side B, Praises What I Do, Amen. That was my jam, okay? But here's why I felt like the Lord showed me that picture. Even though I know nothing about the Bible, even though I really didn't know too much about spiritual disciplines, here's what I had at 16 years old. I had clean hands and a pure heart. And all I really wanted was Him. So here's what the Lord told me. He said, most times we use our prayer rooms as war rooms. For you in 2024, your prayer room is not going to be a war room. It's going to be a surgery room. And there are some things that when you step into this closet that I'm going to show you that need to be cut out of you. And I kid you not, 2024, I'll just say this, I'm really looking forward to 2025, y'all. Um, <laughs> just in two months, two months, there are three things the Lord's had to deal with me on. First thing he had to deal with me on was pride that I didn't know was there. I was dealing with a level of pride that I did not know was there. But then the second thing he had to deal with me on was insecurity. Again, it's something else that I did not know was there. And then the third thing that we just dealt with is surrender. Will you die to the desire of who you want to be so you can be who I've created you to be? Here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you into the surgery room. As we get ready to close, I'm going to pray. But I want you all this week, this is my challenge. Ask the Lord to do surgery on you. Ask him to show you the places in your heart that you didn't know were there that aren't necessarily healthy. And as he does surgery on you, I wanna encourage you not to look at it through your own human point of view, but look at it from God's point of view. Look at it through a godly lens. And as he does surgery, and as he cuts stuff out, here's what you need to know. His grace is all you need. His grace is all you need. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come down front. I'm gonna pray for us real quick. Um, hey, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for the opportunity to share this word. I thank you for every single person in this room. They're your sons, they're your daughters. You care about them deeply. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we would become a people that's completely and totally surrendered to you. That we would fall more in love with you, that we would look more like you, that we would walk more like you, that we would talk more like you, that we would act more like you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the advocate, the one that helps us, the one that leads us, the one that guides us when we find ourselves struggling in seasons of surrender. But Lord, as we surrender, here's what we declare in the face of the enemy. God, we trust you. We completely and totally trust you. So God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And whenever I failed in asking, Lord, I pray that you don't fail in granting. You are absolutely amazing. God bless you, I praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. And everyone said, amen. amen.